Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Robotics Podcast. Uh, hello, Professor So, Thanks so much for joining us in the podcast. It's such an honor to have you. So I would like to ask you first how you would like to, uh, first of all, introduce yourself for the people first time, maybe listening to podcasts, and also how you would like to define yourself. Thank you very much uh, for this invitation. It's uh, 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 So I... I'm a Shigang Suor, uh, yeah. a professor at a Harvard University, engineering professor. Uh, my field is uh, solid mechanics. Mm-hmm. We uh, study materials, uh, how they deform, how they fracture, uh, and uh, also we try to develop uh, new materials, materials to have, mm-hmm. uh, have uh, suitable properties. properties. Okay, wonderful, yeah. And how would you like to define yourself? Do you have any other definition for you beyond being science? Any definition for yourself? Oh, <laughs> just an uh, engineering professor, or uh, I guess, yeah, that, 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 that yeah, okay. my field is um, um, uh, solid mechanics. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah. yeah great. So I'm curious <laughs> to ask you about your childhood. Do you have any memories? Allocate about interesting science technology. I'm really curious about that. How was your childhood? Oh, childhood. Uh, so I I was born in China. Mm. Yeah, uh, China is an interesting period, but somehow I was uh, I've been very lucky to dodge all the troubles that. <laughs> many other people, Chinese, have experienced. So I was born in 1963. Mm-hmm. That was after famine, before yeah. Cultural Revolution. There was a golden period in Chinese history, uh, yeah. a few years. Uh, so I was born uh, doing that. And then, of course, I went through Cultural Revolution. But it didn't yeah. harm me. It harmed mm-hmm. a lot of people. So during that cultural revolution, I was mostly in kindergarten, in yeah. in in elementary school. So yeah. these are uh, places were even protected mm-hmm. during cultural revolution. They did not harm children. <laughs> uh, so so it was extraordinarily lucky. And then then uh, I don't know how much you know about this uh, Chinese history. It's interesting, very intriguing. So unusual uh, because I stay in America for for more than thirty years now. So when I was uh, in China, I didn't know anything special. But now, yeah. in hindsight, it was so such a special period. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but uh, uh, so during Cultural Revolution, that was uh, between sixty six to seventy six. Mm. Uh, for much of that time, uh, university was closed. My parents were both uh, university teachers. They taught uh, 
Russian before Cultural Revolution and English after. <laughs> That's another interesting thing. But um, during the Cultural Revolution, uh, university was just a dysfunctional. It's not a normal place. But uh, we live on campus. Uh, yeah. I was not in the, in the university. Uh, the university was reopened by this great man, Deng Xiaoping. <laughs> he was just extraordinary man. Uh, for yeah. some period, he was a leader of China, very practical, very wise person. He reopened the university in 77. I entered university 81, so I was not harmed in in mm -hmm. any least bit of way, no. <laughs> just a normal university for me. At, at just exactly the right age, 18 years old, I entered university and graduated. Uh, upon graduation, it's just extraordinary. Uh, um, I, uh, I signed up to be a, a graduate student mm. with a professor by the name uh, Xin Ji. Last name is a J.I. Um, he somehow felt I was good enough to be sent to Harvard. Harvard, not any other place, just Harvard. He had a fixed notion, I need to yeah. go to Harvard. Because he previously already sent a very good student to Harvard, was very successful. Uh, Wajin Gao, I don't know if you recognize this name. Mm -hmm. Just outstanding mechanician now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was doing very well and also sent by Professor G to Harvard. So Professor G had a notion. Harvard had um, at that point four solid mechanics professors. So Professor G's plan was to send four of his students to Harvard, one for each professor. He actually realized that more or less eventually. So I was a second to be sent. So at that time uh, in 85, mm -hmm. yeah, 85, just by pure luck, Professor Hutchinson went to China for, for giving some talk, talks. So during these years, um, not many people go to China went to China. So uh, for big shot professor, Harvard professor uh, going to China, mm -hmm. the Chinese uh, uh, you know, scholarly community would arrange a tour within mm -hmm. China. So my hometown was Xi'an. Xi'an was an ancient capital. If you arrange any tour in China, mm -hmm. Xi'an is a must stop. You, you just cannot avoid it. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. And uh, Professor G visited uh, my home university and my own professor, Professor G, uh, decided I should go to Harvard, right? That was his plan. So he introduced me to Professor uh, Hutchinson. At that point, um, all Professor G needed to say was, uh, oh, I have a new student. And this student is a, is a comparable to this other student you liked. Yeah. I was almost accepted on spot. At that time, I barely speak English. <laughs> I actually didn't know much about Harvard at all. 
at this point. Wow. But I was an engineering student, right? Harvard wasn't on the radar screen, and, and not actually. And so, not a single university in the United States were really on my radar screen. So, Xi'an is a little backward place these days. It's an ancient capital, but yeah. falling off the radar chart for many, many centuries, for wow. practically a thousand years. The last time Xi'an was doing well was in yeah. Tang Dynasty, thousand years mm -hmm. ago. So we're talking, speaking about China, the measurement is not a day, year, it was about a thousand years. Yeah, yeah. I would like to stop here because I think it is really wonderful uh, that your supervisor just believed in you and give you opportunity. Maybe it wasn't any rather, but how do you see now, because you're now a professor, how, how is this kind of, this relationship, I think that believing so much in you and sees the potential to renew a professor of the future. When you look back about that, this is maybe a life changing for you to have such a professor like that in your- Yeah, in your oh, Professor Chi seemed to be quite unusual in hindsight. Mm. He himself uh, is, uh, uh, he's still alive, uh, 90 some year old. Yeah. Um, still in good health. Um, he seemed to be to have unusual vision of people and topic. What do yeah. you mean unusual? What do you mean by yeah. unusual? Unusual, for example, in these years, um, you know, in China, uh, uh, he kept up with uh, outside research, international mm -hmm. research, himself uh, also visited uh, United States as a visiting scholar for for a year or two in Delaware. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, in Delaware, that was used to be a center, still is a center for composite research. Mm -hmm. So he had some background. But Professor G himself is an outstanding scholar. And furthermore, uh, at that time, he was already a department head. Uh, so mm -hmm. also politically skillful, yeah. Uh, so he also had quite few very successful students. That cannot be accident. Mm. So if one person has multiple very successful students, that cannot be accident. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you ask how I actually don't know. Good question. Never really thought carefully. It's just, I guess, maybe it's inherently good-hearted, smart person. He didn't really keep his best students, just his students. There's many people uh, doing that for good reasons as well, right? Yeah. But he wanted to find for each of his best students, good students, to a, a bigger opportunity. So in this is in mid 80s. Mm. So there was no question in hindsight, yeah. the biggest opportunities was outside China. Wonderful. This is a really wonderful story. Yeah, in 80s. That's extraordinary. You're, you're yeah. right. Yeah. 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 So I'm curious about your journey from China to Harvard. Yeah. Magazine yeah. Time. Was it challenging for you to settle and just blend? And also, how the passion to material just developed, maybe, I don't know, maybe doubled, I don't know. How does it journey to be in different culture and still barely speak English at this time? So how, how it was for you to be now established in 
one of the renewable professors in the field here. So, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, thank you for asking this. Uh, so I came to Harvard as a graduate student um, in 86. Mm. So by that time, I could already write English quite well. My parents were English professors. So also I spent my college years really uh, study English very hard. So I could write very well, uh, very logically, I guess. Uh, it's a, uh, the grammar still have uh, problems, but I, I liked writing even then. Uh, uh, but I could not speak. Uh, so listening uh, to English was even harder. Because so speak, you speak slowly if you don't speak well. Listening, you have no control of speed. Listening was the hardest. So, so uh, for in the first semester, we were required to take four courses, graduate courses. At Harvard, courses are serious. It was a very difficult period of time, uh, mm -hmm. first semester. Uh, courses are hard. Most time I couldn't understand in class. And also one particular topic uh, was uh, taught by Professor Spapen. Now he's a dear colleague, Professor Spapen. <laughs> he was uh, teaching material science. It was a totally new topic for me. Not very mathematical. I was very mathematical then but a lot of physical intuition and also a lot of um, connection with the physical facts. So it was a graduate course. He, of course, assumed multiple undergraduate courses. He should have already uh, uh, you know, have taken these undergraduate courses uh, so you know part of reality. I did not. Mm -hmm. so that was uh, very hard. Plus I couldn't understand his version of English. He was actually Belgian. <laughs> So I read a lot. Also in first year, you know, uh, you're just so insecure about yourself. Come mm -hmm. to Harvard, right? Uh, great people. And people also don't talk about their grades. So I constantly assume I must be at the bottom of the class. Right? <laughs> so I was struggling. <laughs> so eventually I got OA in four courses. Um, so after first semester, I begin to have some confidence, but that's only in course. Courses. Yeah. First semester, Professor Hutchinson was not on campus. He was on sabbatical in Denmark. Mm -hmm. I had no research. So today students will be upset if you don't do research. But back then we were supposed to take eight courses for the first year. It's not uncommon for not doing any research for first year. So my own research started uh, in, in the summer of uh, uh, 80, this will be 87. Professor Hutchinson was back uh, from uh, uh, Denmark after sabbatical. Mm -hmm. uh, he gave me a topic. I still remember that topic. Mm -hmm. And then he disappeared for the summer uh research uh, place and that was in california it's a big uh, job for him uh, he was on some defense uh, 
council or something. He he always went, but at that time I didn't understand. Hmm. So, but I didn't know what to expect, right? So he disappeared. I was doing this problem. Uh, I actually finished that problem mm -hmm. before he came back. I got a solution. It's a mathematical problem. It's uh, something about uh, finding singular stress field at a corner, three-dimensional corner, not crack tip, at a mm -hmm. corner. So in hindsight, it wasn't that difficult problem. Uh, but uh, I, I was proud of myself, I figured out. Of course, I didn't know why Professor Hutchinson asked me to solve that problem. I had no mm -hmm. real connection with the reality. I have a connection with mathematics. Yeah. So, and he came back. He was totally disinterested in my solution. That's he was not. Yeah, yeah. He did not even bother to listen through my mm. explanation, uh, what I found. But he said, oh, Shikan, I have a new set of problems for you. What's uh, yeah, the new problem was, uh, it, it turns out to be important. I didn't know at that time. It is a problem about uh, laminates, your mm -hmm. same film coatings on substrate. And he could explain to me uh, uh, over the days uh, that uh, why that problems, that class of problems is important. It's uh, important for composites, for, uh, you know, uh, uh, computer uh, electronic packaging, right? Thin film on plastic, metal on ceramics, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, of course, the detailed uh, background came, uh, came uh, gradually, but in the very beginning, it was very clear to him and also to me, he made it clear to me. It was important. And at that time, he was collaborating with Professor Evans in California, Santa Barbara, material scientist. Uh, so he directly connect me uh, to a source of uh, physical situation. That was mm -hmm. what I needed. Just applied at that time, I was just a mathematician, right? Applied mathematician, mm -hmm. know how to solve equations. I didn't quite know how equations, solutions are related to uh, physical reality or even further away from how that physical reality to, uh, to, 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 to engineering, to something people, yeah. So both connections were made to me after mm -hmm. months getting involved in the project. I didn't even know that's important. I was a graduate student, right? Just an undergraduate student, applied mathematicians, solved differential equations. That was my thing. <laughs> I was actually quite good at it uh, in hindsight. So I rapidly solved a lot of problems. Uh, I didn't know application, but then people make Evans and Hutchinson made it clear to me how each solution could be used in relation with the experiments and in relation of the development of composites. So then by the second year, uh, this will be 88, I could propose new situations could lead to new application, new experiments. So in hindsight, maybe I was unusual 
uh, now I see many graduate students, not many graduate students can rapidly make this transition from a student with a certain background and learn something quickly and then propose new things. Still related, not new field, still same field, but all kinds of variations. So by the end of, uh, I think I was very funny. So I guess by the summer of 88, uh, yeah, let's say, uh, yeah, or yeah, yeah, there's something like what well, spring 88, quite early on. Hutchinson already asked me, oh, Shigang, uh, we should plan for you to graduate. I, Professor Hutchinson, I only came here 86. I, I cannot possibly graduate. I don't even know how to begin research yet. Oh, 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 you, you're that new? I didn't realize. So, um, so ultimately, I actually graduated in 89 in, uh, mm. so defended um, in uh, April uh, 89, actually, actually uh, less than three years. It, it was, uh, in hindsight, it was extraordinary. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it had a huge uh, drawback later. Yeah. So, yeah. I think this is a really curious story since you related to how graduate students can make this transition and then yeah. you bring a problem and solution as well. And yeah. from your story, you have absent professor at the beginning, he's brilliant, but was absent. And you take that charge to, to solve the specific problems and doesn't make sense to you unless yeah. you physics. So yeah. maybe I can ask you, do you think if you are not connected to physics, you were able to do what you're doing in these three yeah. years? This missing piece for you? Uh, missing piece, yeah. In the beginning, uh, my first uh, problem uh, Hutchinson gave to me, yeah, I just solved it as a mathematical problem. I kind of, mechanics, is a, uh, at least in terms of image, is quite related to physical reality. It was, it was no, not too abstract, but still, yeah. you need to uh, show how real people do experiments. So what does that solution, uh, how does that solution impact other, what other people do, right? Mm -hmm. I always wanted to know that. But uh, the, for the first problem, I, I couldn't see that. I still cannot see that. Uh, yeah. But uh, from second problem on, um, yeah, it uh, was very clear to me. Uh, I can even develop a variation how to connect to other people. Or, uh, or other experiments. That was uh, tremendously satisfying. Also, Professor Hutchinson wasn't always uh, absent. He was absent for the first year, and in subsequent years, he was on campus. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, we spent uh, time together, yeah, rapidly finished uh, multiple papers. That was uh, very helpful. In those years, uh, uh, even though publication uh, themselves are slow, takes about one year or two to write a paper and uh, you know review. However, we had a preprints, right? Mm. In those years, uh, preprints were sent out to the relevant people and the relevant people already designed experiments and give us feedback, how things are used. So I was, uh, it was a pretty good, uh, uh, guided by practical people uh, through these interactions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw faxes back 
forward between Hutchinson and uh, uh, Tony Evans mm -hmm. about solutions I was working on, what's needed, what's missing. Oh, that was uh, very, very helpful. Yeah. Of course, nowadays we arrange Zoom meetings yeah. uh, between collaborators. Uh, right? But do, do you, just a quick question here, when you compare to 80s, 80-60 and when you graduated, do you think there's huge difference nowadays, the same vibes and culture are different? Because you speak about very supportive professor who believed in you and also you were a very brilliant student. So yeah. how, how do you see this nowadays? Still we have this culture from you, still we have to make effort to bring what we have in the 80s, for example. Yeah, uh, many things are same, but some things are different. So same as, uh, so among our colleagues, we still see, you know, some extraordinary mentors. You know, mm -hmm. people had long vision, also can relate, connect that vision to new students. That's all it takes, right? It's a, not about uh, the yeah, professor-student relation. It's not about, oh, let me, help you rent a house, we were beyond that. We, we just really need to connect, uh, help somebody start a career with a good set of problems so that you teach people some kind of vision mm. that could continue, right? We see many colleagues doing that. That's, I think is the same. Uh, what's different is uh, the size of the group. Mm -hmm. Typical size of group now, at least at Harvard, is uh, larger than before. So mm -hmm. when I was a student for Hutchinson, right, his group is typically is a, a three graduate students, maybe one or two postdocs, one or two, uh, you know, uh, visitors. Mm -hmm. That's it. So for me, constantly we're going between, uh, you know, uh, it's around 15 people. And my group is a small, modest at Harvard. Yeah. Many of my colleagues have more. So that uh, changed the relationship between professor and yeah. individual student. But some of my colleagues uh, manage a large group very well. We have a, Great people like uh, George Whitesides, Joanna Eisenberg, just a name, just go on and on. David Ways, David Ways has constantly 100 people. So he has his way of uh, managing through yeah. hierarchy. So yeah. students already learn to perform in a team. So that's mm -hmm. different, not necessarily bad, it's different, yeah. very different. Your relationship with your professor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think this is a really wonderful relationship for um, between mentor and mentee. But I'm curious for you after graduation, your passion about material. What's something you find maybe you understood about material while you're designing the understanding how the fatigue is happening and crack initiate? What's something was seeing very interesting for you back then when very young that I'm so obsessed to understand the material how the failure at that certain time. What's this kind of question you had in your mind to solve the problem? And how you have, because sometimes it's hard to spot a problem and also find a solution as well. So how are these tactics for you to, to figure out this is a problem here? Yeah. Is this something, how does this come to you that 
this, of course, you are passionate and intelligent at the same time, but to figure out the problem and solution, how we yeah. can do that? You mean identify new problem yeah. in a new area? Uh -huh. Yeah, um, I actually, actually, it's a good question. I, um, so it's a, it seemed to be always in me. Uh, when I was uh, even in high school, uh, back in high school, my only passion was uh, mathematics. Hmm. I won uh, many, many low level competitions, you know, provincial, yeah. never made to the national. But even in China, make to pro province was already quite big deal. <laughs> so I made a quite uh, the top of a uh, province. So even back then, um, so I like to solve mathematical problem. And what even more is I like to post new mathematical problems. So I would design new problems. So in hindsight, these are just child's play, but uh, it still requires different kind of skill than solving other people's problem. Mm -hmm. so we want to pose a problem that's kind of original. Yeah. So I have a collection of problems posted by myself in hindsight, it's just, just a child's play. But yeah. that's always in me. I want to do new problems, create new problems. Uh, so uh, then, um, the, yeah, in, uh, at a university, um, I was, uh, I had a, a concentration, uh, my major was, mm -hmm. uh, was uh, engineering mechanics. It is about the design of, uh, you know, elasticity, plasticity, fractures, this kind of thing. So in China, undergraduate mechanics training was quite comprehensive. In terms mm -hmm. of topics, we already covered what will be covered in PhD courses this country, not to the certain same depth, but mm -hmm. a certain same breadth. So for example, we had a separate course on plasticity. In the United States, you'll be lucky. You got a course even at a graduate level. Undergraduate, I already had a course. Another course in fraction, uh, undergraduate. It's, a, it's a extraordinary. So back then, uh, when I was a college student, I already, uh, so for each course, these uh, major courses, I already start to essentially write my own textbooks, even then. Um, so I take the notes and then I will reassemble notes according to my own understanding, my own reading. I was always like, just interested. Mm -hmm. I end up doing very badly compares the effort I put in badly in examinations because I think too deeper, too, 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 mu too much and too many tangents are rather than fix the task of immediacy. For student, immediate task is past exams. It has to be, right? So it means you master elementary things very quickly and yeah. very, very fluently. I wasn't doing that very well. For each examination problem, I always remember, I always think about it from first principle. Other students already start the middle. Here's the equation I can use, just use it. I would develop an equation. So by the end of the exam, I was still at the middle of developing that equation. I was doing fine, but I wasn't at the top of my, it was a, it was a, a, a top yeah. five, but it's not top, top student. <laughs> 
Yeah, but this is, uh, may I ask you a question? Because I think this is really a very important point that when you go with your mind and imagination of uh, different aspects of what you're studying, and that was maybe a drawback for you in studying that later on it was beneficial for you. Do you think it's just how the education looked like that they'll encourage you to think in a deeper way? Yeah. That's something you think is we have to work on that just think beyond what you study. Yeah, it worked for me, um, at least uh, for the un undergraduate period. But now my sons uh, already uh, both graduate from college. They had yeah. their own, they already ha have started their own careers now. So in America, undergraduate education seemed to serve very different purpose. Mm. The purpose was more about uh, 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 leaving your parents, uh, living with uh, other people, mm -hmm. be influenced by your peers. These, at least at Harvard, that's my impression. Yeah. These aspects, social aspects, seem to be much more important than technical learning for most, for average student. That's my impression. Uh, I guess uh, for a uh, very simple, it's not good or bad, it's just difference. For example, uh, one difference is when I was a student in China, undergraduate student. So uh, after graduation, each student was assigned a job. So you're a mechanics student, you're going to study mechanics, right? Either in a factory or in a research institute you do not find a job yourself. This, you cannot find a job yourself. Government plan mm -hmm. your career, give you a job, assign you a job, right? So then it means that if you study mechanics, you're working on mechanics that, yeah, in my generation, even though we were assigned job, um, but uh, most uh, people, my classmates, if they stayed in China, they moved on to do other things, right? They change, but but when we were student, that was plan. We plan to work on mechanics for our life. Here, you know, uh, American student, you're a mechanical engineer. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to Wall Street, uh, right? Or I'm going to do computer science, uh, yeah. or I'm going to develop, uh, you know, uh, driverless cars. The opportunities are very different. Mm -hmm. No government assign your job, and your job is defined by yourself. So then your technical depth is almost irrelevant mm -hmm. to your success in United States. That's how I feel. Is it mm -hmm. so, so some of my colleagues are, are upset, but because I have this Chinese experience, I see the difference. I cannot decide for myself which one actually is better for an individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they think that's really excellent point. Do you think maybe because now we have maybe now sometimes it is rare to find a job that satisfies yeah. you. And even if you're a professor, sometimes you, some people could leave it for industry. It's different, of course, the personal yeah. experiences. But do you think if we compare about Chinese experience, yes, US, which one do you think it could be really helpful in growing maybe? It's, it's just different, but I don't know. You have yeah. both expertise. Which one could be really help in growing, or maybe challenging? I don't know. How do you see this experiences if you compare which one? 
or it depends on personalities. I don't know. Uh, yeah, uh, depend on personality and also depend on the country, right? So mm -hmm. for United States, for all these decades, we already know that, right? From our graduate school, um, large number of graduate students came from other countries. Yeah. Right. United States can do that, right? Yeah. If you're Chinese, you cannot do that. You cannot hope that a lot of people from other country will come to China. So then United States uh, can afford to have a very liberal, non-technical education mm. at yeah. undergraduate level, even though our courses are very technical, but it, the kind of mastery is laughable. Uh, if you just look at a technical, uh, right? There are of course a brilliant student, but that's, that's a, just a, such a small fraction. So it's a laughable, but it works mm. for the United States. Yeah. 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 So yes. I would don't want to change because these liberal education does train uh, people perhaps with some more creativity, uh, more flexibility and a more leadership kind of thing, people skill. So yeah. So yeah. so yeah, it's a it's a it's a different. It works for yeah. United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Maybe I'm curious again the relation between the loving for mathematics and the material of passion. Yeah. And speaking, I think about the modeling. I think when we speak about understanding the material, how they behave, and coming up with physics-based modeling, and just understand how how this material behave. How do you see the modeling for you when you just look at the material? What's the first thing you consider to model, understand, to see, figure out this is a significant parameter in this material, what's a significant behavior? How, do you, how does this relationship go hand in hand in hand with mathematics and material understanding? Since we lag this sometimes, we go on the lab, do empirical work, and sometimes optimize trial and error. But when you look in mathematics, it is just hard to come yeah. up with a model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How this work for you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a uh, very good point. So um, my field is uh, solid mechanics. Solid mechanics um, uh, has a range all the way for, you know, classical uh, end is uh, you uh, use existing materials to design bridge, design building, design airplane. So in my early uh, years, uh, the goal were design composite for uh, for you know high temperature uh, application. The, at that point, it was a combustors uh, ceramic matrix composite for combustors in airplane. Even though myself are not designing combustors, but it was very clear, made very clear to us by the industry that that's needed. Yeah. High temperature materials for combustor, for chemical, just a better combustion, mm -hmm. more environmentally friendly combustion, and also for fuel economy. It was made very clear to us. And why you need to have a high temperature material, that's, that's, that's why. And a high temperature, which are the high temperature material? Has to be ceramics, it cannot be other kind of materials. And how do you make uh, use ceramics? Ceramics is so brittle. How can you make a brittle material survive 
engine environment, airplane, and your customers are willing to take your airplane. So it was very clear the connection between our research to the goal. Mm. Uh, so I was uh, embedded in that culture, uh, even though I myself was not designer of aircraft, not even developing materials myself at that point, but the connection was very clear, very mm. helpful. So that's one kind of application. The other application made a huge impact uh, on me was uh, electronics, microelectronics. That was also new at that point. So I don't know if you, you probably realize that, right? So uh, we have um, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, good success in designing bridges, not because we had finite code or we mm -hmm. understood elasticity better. That was uh, only for recent decades, right? For thousands of years, people design bridges by failure, collapse, mm -hmm. and you improve. And people have some understanding without calculation. Some understand then design bridges, some bridges survive, other bridges do not. Some people actually learned. So, but when you design uh, chips, you do not have that luxury. You don't have a hundred thousand years of experience for chips, right? Every you know, year and a half, 18 months, uh, you need to design your next generation of chips, different scales, maybe different materials. So that put some understanding and quick experiments to such a premium value. So mechanics really come in. So I work with uh, uh, people in, at companies and mostly Intel really give me eye-opening how mechanics was used in developing new structures. Mm -hmm. uh, very helpful. So, and uh, during that interaction, it became very clear what kind of things can be useful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's wonderful. So I get many inspirations uh, through uh, practical needs. Mm. Uh, of course, I also have a little good skill just turn that practical needs, not only solve their immediate problem and also twist that into an academic problem, kind of more fundamental so that can broadly uh, appreciate it by colleagues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's, uh, that's really, I think important to have impact yeah. and also maintain yeah. the academic research. But I'm curious about the structures you mentioned, very important example in chips, you don't have this luxury to yeah. test for many years. Yeah. So how do you see the relationship between the structure, maybe how to optimize the structure and design this new material? How do you figure out I need this new material and that's what is missing? Can you give an example for that? How the relationship between morphology structure and new yeah. material? Yeah, excellent question. So one specific uh, uh, problem uh, faced by Intel and uh, the entire industry in 19, almost starting from beginning, but in 1990s, uh, a class problem was made very clear to me. So it was uh, about adhesion, mm. adhesion between different materials. So when you make a chip, you need to adhere maybe a ceramic to a semiconductor 
and the metal to that ceramic, right? many, many layers. Right? You need to have an integrated structure. Mm -hmm. right? So then the adhesion become important, right? Otherwise uh, you can have debonding. So adhesion, so today many people say, oh, I do ab initial calculations. After so many decades, that approach is still a failure. So it's hard uh, to do interfacial adhesion. Okay, so adhesion is not a, a property of a given material. It's a property of a, at least two materials and also how you process it. So during the adhesion process, maybe you have oxygen, maybe you have a nitrogen, a different pressure, just so many variables, temperature. So it's a, it's a, it's a process variable, mm -hmm. right? So uh, now the problem was the following. Um, so when Intel in those days, uh, they said, oh, I have a new chip. I need to develop a new chip. Uh, in this new chip, I introduce a new material A into the structure because it has extraordinary low, uh, low key dielectric at that point, low dielectric constant. It has nothing to do with mechanics, but it's a new material. You need to adhere well. We had no experience integrate that material into the chip. That's the problem, right? So they are, how do I learn about this? They already knew computation is hopeless. This is never get any useful result to this day. So my, my computational colleague will be upset, but I need them to show evidence that was useful uh, for this problem. It's mm -hmm. not. All right, so then what Intel uh, uh, did was uh, test it out. Oh. Okay, I have this new material. Let me put this material on this uh, other material. Turn the oxygen knob. Here's how I process so many minutes, so many seconds at this pressure. And then see how it fail or not. That became a problem. Yeah, so when you just deposit this film, think about this film could be, you know, uh, 100 nanometer. The film is so thin, it doesn't have much load. So nearly everything you put on top of it doesn't really fail. So how do you fail or not? You need to build whole devices. Now you have a layer upon layer upon layer. These other layers will apply load. So how do you know how much load? Because uh, when you turn on computer, there's a temperature change. So in order to simulate that temperature change, temperature change give you thermal stress. So the industry will do thermal uh, cycle test. So thermal, thermal cycle test for three months. And you have the report, your interface works or not. So then the industry colleague said, I only have 18 months, I need to turn out a product. And each knob I turn, you need to report to me after three months. Yeah. Whether that knob is correct or not. If a knob is correct, great, three months. Knob is wrong. Do I do this again? Another three months? You see, you see the problem? Your feedback time is too slow for you, specific for this problem. Yeah. Just because you need to build a whole structure and the way you apply load is doing thermal cycling. So then how do you do this? How do you do this? So the solution, it turns out, I only play a minor role uh, in ultimate solution. I was involved in the beginning, but the crucial role was played by this uh, a colleague at Stanford. 
Reiner Dowska, he was my hero. Mm. Uh, with my friend at um, Intel, Chinma, uh, the pair, so Stanford, Intel, they're so close together, right? Chinma was a very good friend of mine. Uh, I was so far away. I was uh, at uh, UC Santa Barbara. So I did not involve in the final solution. The final solution turns out to be very simple. They say, okay, so when you make your film, right? So that uh, then they glue another chip on top, just glue it instantly and directly do PO test or bending test, see whether interface debound or not. So because they have a previous experience, what kind of load cause the fracture? If this load cause fracture, that won't pass three months test. If you can pass my this test, you will pass that test most likely. So then they turn this thing very rapidly. The moment you turn the knob, this morning you turn the knob, the afternoon I do a rapid test for you. And you already know it works or not. So now I simplify a little bit. So in order to relate uh, the fast test, what we call accelerated test to the real test, you need to understand mechanics well enough. So made some contribution to these guys final solution. Mm. So that shows me how mechanics actually is used really literally save huge amount of money for Intel and also made colleagues at Intel understand, see how academic research could actually help. So for many years, I had a steady stream of uh, support from Intel, not only in terms of money, they provide some money and also steady stream of uh, just good problems. Problems that they feel important and they couldn't solve immediately. They, they, yeah, they just have a, we had a monthly meeting you, you ask me how to identify problem. I use other people to identify problem for us. I would like thank you for this example. I think it's very concrete and also clear for students why so how yeah. we, we can solve problems. And I'm curious for the second part because you are so fascinated, I think, or maybe obsessed by friction mechanics. Even on Twitter, you really make an excellent thread about one-handed deal of toughness. And, and <laughs> thank you. Yeah. But I'm curious to ask you how you can, because you also do that, how you can design material that maybe delay the fatigue or the crack. Since you play with the morphology, and honestly, there's not a lot of research, how you can compute or maybe combine multi-material in a certain structure so that you can delay the fatigue. Or maybe I'm asking you, do you think we can design material maybe never damaged? Mm -hmm. If we speak an Intel example, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, excellent question. So uh, the fracture you have mentioned as a tweet, a tweet, uh, a thread, a long tweet. I don't know how many tweets now that thread is called 100 years of uh, toughness. Yeah. I'm, I'm still in the middle of uh, uh, converting these tweets into a review. Uh, mm -hmm. Next year, 2021, would be a uh, hundred years uh, anniversary of um, uh, the Griffiths paper widely regarded as the paper 
that started fracture mechanics. So, and uh, I, I'm trying to, uh, uh, yeah. So now the fracture, uh, of course, the fracture has been with the humanity and with animals <laughs> mm. for uh, since the beginning of the life, a very, very important aspect of nature. So people knew about this, but really the modern way of uh, connecting fracture, this uh, macroscopic thing so important to animals and humans, uh, to all the way to atoms. That connection was first really made by this man Griffith, hmm. 100 years yeah. ago. Before that, people mumbo jumble. Uh, so it wasn't total uh, surprise if it, Griffiths did not make that connection. Other people would, because a hundred years ago, you know, important things happened. People yeah. essentially for the first time really connect to everything else, to atoms. Right. So it wasn't a surprise why hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it wasn't a surprise. So uh, anyway, for fracture. Now fracture, uh, well, um, yeah, it has uh, many decades of uh, development. Uh, so by the time I got into the field, the Hutchinson and another professor at Harvard, uh, Jim Rice, uh, these two men, when they were young, they made uh, seminal contributions to the development of fracture. So by the time in you know late eighties, I was a PhD. The consensus was uh, the topic was over. Fragile mm. mechanics was over. Uh, it turns out uh, these guys uh, <laughs> uh, over uh, uh, optimistic. So for some something as important as a fracture, the topic was never really over. Just uh, some stage is completed. There are other things. For example, mm -hmm. uh, in late 80s, uh, we faced the opportunities or troubles of applying fracture mechanics to microelectronics. Mm -hmm. The chip story I just, just told you, and also apply fracture mechanics to develop composites, ceramic composites. So these were not in previous you know, textbook or people's learning. So, uh, and then <laughs> it's uh, funny, when I was uh, teaching at uh, um, Princeton, so I moved to Princeton in uh, 1997, 90, right? Then I left 2003. During the Princeton years, uh, Princeton was also a small campus. Have you been to Princeton campus? No, well, you, you, yeah, if you have an opportunity, you should. Uh, so it's just a fascinating campus, very small, very pretty. A uh, small has it's a nice feature. So mm. uh, my uh, office neighbor, neighboring office, just a few offices down the hallway, uh, was a professor by the name um, uh, uh, Sigurd Wagner. He was uh, older than me, now retired. Incredibly enthusiastic. So uh, I was so proud of him because he was an electrical engineer. I was proud of him. Oh, I work with Intel, help Intel to solve their problems. Hmm. said, Shiga, Intel is a past industry. 
they already ship their processes to Asian countries. If you want to stay in university, do original research, you should not do microelectronics. You should work with me to on macroelectronics, M-A, macroelectronics. So he introduced this word macroelectronics to me. He said, look, Zhigang, everybody wants to make things small, but people will never be small. We'll be our size forever. So at that point, he was working on large area display. He said, people want to have large displays. Nobody wants to have small displays. He didn't foresee where children like to have cell phones. In these years, you know, this is in the 90s, right? People want to have a giant screens. A giant screen has separate problems from microelectronics. This is a cost become very sensitive, right? You need to process a large area electronics. So another set of mechanics problem, right? That thing uh, quickly morphed to uh, stretchable electronics, now we know. So Seeger was a father of, uh, many people regard him as a father of, uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, stretchable electronics. So I would think I probably was a nephew of the stretchable electronics. I worked with Seeger. I got order from Seeger, whatever he wants to do. So, uh, so uh, that introduced me to another set of materials. One thing leads to another leads me to work on soft materials. So uh, you need to be stretchable, right? So mm. uh, elastomer was uh, already at uh, 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 Princeton. We started to uh, interface with people <laughs> who need to work with uh, PDMS. So we wrote several papers with uh, with um, Seeger, um, all because of Seeger and Seeger people want to have answers. So you ask me, how do I identify new area? I, new area just fall on my laps. I don't really need to identify them; they just 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 fall. Uh, so yeah, I became a nephew of uh, stretchable electronics. So and then came to Harvard. Uh, became a, a cousin of soft robotics because Whitesides wants to do soft, soft robotics. Yeah, both uh, George Whitesides and uh, Sieg Wagner not only said, Shigang, I want to uh, get you interested in working on stretchable electronics and soft robots, they also put money on table. Shigang, here's the money, hire people to work on this. Okay, sure. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how for you just starting maybe in soft robotics, uh, since it's highly dependent on material, do you think the how far robots understand materials? If we wanted to design them in a certain shape or maybe adding new functionality, or now we're speaking about how we can design a material that have its intelligence and compute everything internally. If we speak about smart material, how do you see robots understand the material? And for example, also we speak about the with Professor George Weissides in the podcast just one year ago about how we can maybe extract the beneficial non-linearities in the material, how we can figure out that, how we can embrace this non-linearities and not get rid of them. Yeah. Maybe it could be useful, like buckling, etc. How do you see this area uh, 
if robots understand them and how is it nonlinear in the material as well? Yeah. You mentioned the buckling, the word buckling. Yeah, George, George Whitesides. Um, so uh, for short period of time, he said, oh, Shigang. I also mm. talked to other people as well. Oh, I learned uh, this uh, instability from Shigang. But at that point, instability was um, very important and a very interesting phenomena for mechanism. Mm. If you're a mechanician, you have to be interested in buckling. So, and then uh, early on, uh, even before I interacted with uh, George Whitesides, uh, we show how you can use uh, buckling to achieve something extraordinary. So one particular example was uh, so working with a uh, 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 applied physicist, uh, uh, um, um, uh, uh, Siegfried Bauer, who also sadly passed away uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, so working with his team and also his uh, very brilliant student, um, um, you probably will interview him if you haven't. This guy, um, uh, Christoph Kaplinger. Oh, I tried, but he, he moved to Germany, I think. He now. Yeah, yeah, directly. yeah. He is uh, now Germany. Yeah. So, yeah, Kaplinger. Yeah. Was a Siegfried uh, student. So, Siegfried, at that time, already collaborated with me. Siegfried sent Kaplinger to my group to, inter to interact with my group. So then every month, or I forgot, it's every month or every two weeks, we had uh, you know, uh, online, that time it was a Skype. There was no Zoom yet, Skype. Uh, so we interact. So we work on one uh, specific problem. It's a dielectric elastomer, you probably heard, apply electric voltage to cause yeah. deformation. So we achieved uh, at that point, it was a world record. You just apply voltage. So I can turn area one by one area to four by four area, just by applying electric field. Just enormous deformation by electric field. Uh, the way we achieve that is through an instability. So, and then uh, so I'm a mechanics person. I didn't do experiment at that time. Bauer did experiment. We did some design and uh, we could explain mechanics really in simple terms. And the George White side just love it. But, wow, this instability can do something you couldn't do in normal, just uh, normal material instability. But in hindsight, for material scientists, we also always know instability is just a phase transition, right? So, uh, I, uh, yeah, uh, so during one Christmas, um, George and I had to rush through our, our MERSEC. So we just uh, you know, online back and forward about a proposal. So I was uh, saying, wow, this, uh, this instability, you know, mechanical instability at the macroscopic scale, really is just what material scientists are familiar with. It's just a phase transition. You have a sudden rearrangement in material sudden rearrangement of atoms. And at a macroscopic scale, you have a sudden rearrangement or discontinuous rearrangement of the shape. Mm. It's the same mathematics 
same phenomena are just 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 uh, just the scale is different. So we could uh, connect these two things and do uh, do many things. So George was incredibly enthusiastic about that idea. He just made enormous after George. His imagination just <laughs> indescribable. <laughs> Once he understood a gist of idea, he will mm. amplify the idea. So eventually I had to learn mechanics from him, put it this way. He would teach me mechanics. Zhigang, this is how mechanics should work. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, but I could, uh, so my little contribution was because of uh, instability uh, was a, such a long tradition in mechanics. Mechanics, yeah. people know a lot. Uh, one of my strengths is once I understood something, I could explain that something to other people. So in this case, I only need to explain to one person, that's George Whitesides. And then he explained to the world how we should use instability to do all kinds of things. Yeah, that's really your wonderful. Yeah, I think uh, we're still in the field figuring out how we can use this non-linearity on instabilities to get yeah. interesting information. Yeah, and I'm yeah, curious yeah. you, yeah, I think because we are closing then, then I don't have too much time, I think. So I just have a few questions. Uh, the first one, what do you think maybe could still maybe um, interesting for the field of soft robotics and soft material design? And we still, we're not focusing yet on that. What's something you think we have to make efforts in this direction? Maybe you think still missing a lot of attention and we have to maybe figure out that or maybe make efforts and research and considering this problem. What could be that thing from your experience? Yeah, um, so uh, from materials uh, uh, aspect, I, so uh, one aspect of course is uh, mechanics itself. Mm. If you look at uh, robots and also machines, our experience in the past, uh, very, very few successful examples we have actually yeah. using elastomer and hydrogel making anything. So one outstanding example, of course, is the tire. Tire is a highly engineered structure. Better use rubber, right? Mm. Right. But a tire itself is so far away from a functional robot, right? For the crisis, the, the tire doesn't deform very much. So yeah. it, it's engineered in particular way over many decades uh, to the extent that very few people can actually explain to you what's actually the science and the mechanics of time. You can take a look book, the, the papers are thousands of them, but none of them are translatable any other application. Just too mm. much depth and uh, I would say too little scientific understanding that's translatable. So I'm not saying these researchers are not scientists, but just because this is such a commercial product, essentially we need to relearn or, or create the science of uh, soft material for many applications, much mm. more. That science is missing. Oh, that's, yeah. I think this is really excellent point. 
And may I ask you, where do you think this problem comes from that we don't have this kind of, yeah, this kind of concept of how we can commercialize that and making reproducible soft trouble? Yes. Why do you think, what, what could be missing here? Missing, there are a few immediate things missing, right? Uh, yeah. One thing is um, uh, for many soft robots, uh, if you want to have, let's say, 10% strain or 50% strain, these are modest strain, but these are already quite large deformation. So the hysteresis, so loading and unloading may follow different curve. Right? That hysteresis itself is a problem for many applications. Uh, or you need to deal with it or design material to avoid it. Also, um, uh, so if you want to have this kind of deformation, uh, just uh, survive for many, many cycles, uh, a fatigue is an issue. So uh, car tires uh, solve fatigue problem by reinforcement. So you have a lot of wires, metal wires, uh, plastic wires, uh, all kinds of wires inside the material. It's a composite, it's not just soft material. Now, if you want to uh, make a robots, uh, will people be happy with composite? If so, what kind of composite? If not, do you need to develop new soft material to overcome soft uh, fatigue issue? So you can do a very simple experiment with uh, uh, PDMS. You can try it at home, right? With a PDMF, and you just uh, make a little cut and do it as a cycle, 100 cycles, or just a rubber band, cut a cut, make a cut, and the cycle, mm -hmm. the crack will grow. So mm -hmm. you cannot tolerate soft robot has this kind of quality, right? So he yeah. is a clear problem. His race is another clear problem. Also are likely, uh, people will develop a composite because maybe homogeneous material is not good enough to fulfill all the functions. Stretchable composite is another new field. Because uh, for aerospace material, right? We develop, uh, you know, uh, aerospace body now is a carbon uh, mm -hmm. fiber with epoxy matrix. Carbon is a terribly brittle material Epoxy is a terribly fatigue prone material, but somehow this composite is really tough fatigue resistant material. Good enough for making airplane, mm -hmm. right? So bad materials when made into composite can be extraordinary. That's no. Yeah. But that's airplane material. We should do the same thing for stretch material, soft material, composite, using, you know, just ordinary material, make it fatigue resistant, low hysteresis, or whatever function is identified. So soft robots, and just in general, there's a bio-inspiration and a bio-integration. So we're totally talking about, uh, you know, tissue engineering. I really pose a whole new class of uh, materials and the mechanics problem for the new generation. Some people are, you know, just uh, try to develop a new product, a new tire, new type of thing, like tire, have a massive appeal. But some people just focus on specific material issues. So it really is a broad enough range 
can allow many people working on this problem over many years. This is a very exciting time in the field. Yeah. I think uh, you really put excellent point. The first one about the fatigue issue that we can't tolerate soft material. If you have a yeah. content, make yeah. 100 cycle and yeah. just fail yeah. it. I'm curious to ask you then, yeah, we don't have so much really research on that. It just, we show the result, but we neglect some time with this fatigue or how, yeah. Yeah. how it will be. And that's maybe the issue here we have to. But I'm curious when you highlight the example of using epoxy and carbon, both bad material, and when you yeah. have it, yeah. them, it's just very tough. Yeah. How do you figure out this for soft material? Because, for example, we have a lot of trade-offs. For example, in ionic convective polymer, sometimes if you have, for example, higher sickness in structure, you get higher forces sometimes, but the response is very slow, maybe because of the electrostatic interaction. I'm not sure. But this is kind of trade-off in the material. Mm -hmm. And when you have to consider too bad material and give you interesting uh, feature like toughness or, and how we figure out that how we figure out this material can really make a good chemistry in having toughness high toughness so how we yeah. figure out this yeah it's an excellent question uh, so recently uh, in last uh, uh, two three years uh, we and a number of other groups really uh, zero in on this uh, point how do you create uh, soft materials, which are also fatigue resistant, fatigue resistant soft materials. So we already said, uh, so convince yourself soft materials are fatigue prone is very easy. Just uh, take a rubber band, make a little cut. So rubber band, mm -hmm. before you make cut, you can stretch this many, many times. So I used to have this uh, experiment in class. I pass around a rubber band. So mm. let's say we'll have 20, 30 students in class. So each student stretch maybe 10 to 50 times and pass to another student. By the end, this rubber band come back to me, it's still working very fine. And then I just cut this rubber band with a short crack and pass mm. around. After one or two students, the band will rupture. So you can do this experiment yourself with or without a crack. Rubber band, you need to have a broad width rubber band you, you will see that the difference is just enormous. All right. Yeah. So if you make a larger structure, you cannot avoid a small cut. If you avoid, it's not really a structure. Think about the car tires and you need to design material without a small cuts for car tire. Come on, you're dreaming, right? Car tires need to be on the road. Robots mm -hmm. need to deal with the world. You, you need to be robust. Right, so fatigue uh, is um, a clear issue from very early on. But a fatigue in mechanics and materials uh, has been a hundred year old problem, even older than uh, Griffith. It was a known problem uh, with very little clear solution, very little. Uh, but uh, people also know uh, something like a composite actually it's quite fatigue resistant. Yeah. So I don't know how many people, certainly not in the textbook, clearly articulate why composite is actually fatigue resistant. So mm. fatigue people, community usually worry about materials that has fatigue problem, such as metal, such as rubber, such as plastic. You have fatigue problem, I study fatigue problem of that material. So people haven't really spent a lot of time 
So ask a very simple question: How do I invent a new material that is highly fatigue resistant? Right. So now, for soft material, we have the opportunity. The question already posed very clearly because we need it, and it doesn't exist. So then, in recent years, we have uh, uh, borrowed this composite idea. All we need to do is uh, we publish a number of papers already. Uh, do a composite. So you have a fiber, which is a stretchable fiber. Mm -hmm. So one kind of rubber. Com matrix is another stretchable material. So both are uh, elastomer, both are fatigue prone, bad fatigue. Mm -hmm. However, these two materials have a different modulus. So let's say modulus, Young's modulus fiber is 10 times that a matrix. When you do that, we made a demonstration. Yeah, this material is fatigue resistant. The fatigue threshold, for example, the number, we have number. So uh, the way we measure uh, how things, how tough a material, how um, fatigue resistant, the number measure, but one clear measurement is uh, resistance to the growth of a crack. If you do a monotonic loading, observe crack growth, this critical loading is called toughness. For natural rubber, it's a, a 10 to four joule per meter square energy per unit area, 10 to four toughness. But if mm -hmm. you do cyclic loading, 50 joule per meter square. Mm -hmm. Orders of magnitude poor. Yeah. So this 50 value was reported uh, in 1960s almost as old as, as my age, 1960s, and had not been changed in all these decades. But just in recent few years, number of us have demonstrated you can reach 1,000 joule per meter wow. as a fatigue threshold by composite, essentially. Yeah, That's just ordinary good. rubber, ordinary hydrogen, you achieve mm -hmm. fatigue threshold 1,000. Mm -hmm. And how do you... Yeah, and how do you see the, the the shape, or because we speak about shape changing, how the material can shape uh, changes its shape. How yeah. do you see the relationship between crack growth and the shape of these two material? Do you think uh, it's play significant control, or just you have to play them like as you mentioned, like uh, matrix or lattice, for example? Do you think the changing of the shape has a strong relation or not with the crack growth? The shape. Uh, it does. Uh, shape has an uh, effect. So uh, we have demonstrated a few different shapes because okay, so we can use a 3D printing to control the shape. So uh, we just say a fiber matrix, just straight fiber matrix uh, yeah. will give you that property fatigue resistant. Uh, but if you have a crack going in the direction along the fiber, then fiber doesn't really stop fracture. In that case, you can uh, use a 3D printing to make a lattice. Mm -hmm. So three-dimensional lattice, uh, then fill the open space with a soft matrix. We demonstrate that, that will also work. That will work for all directions. The crack, mm -hmm. any direction cannot go through. Uh, so, and also um, there's a, we submit a new paper. Uh, I just say, uh, if you look at uh, many biological tissue, one particular tissue, heart valve. 
hard valve uh, needs to be fatigue resistant because it, it keep, keep moving. That's a function of a hard valve. It's yeah. a soft material, keep moving. Uh, so billion times during a lifetime or something like that, just so you can uh, one second a time and how much mm -hmm. how many years you can cal calculate, right? Uh, that material is uh, fantastic. Uh, so that material actually itself uh, is a composite. So people wow. know about that. It's a composite. And recently we mimicked this. We use a 3D printing and use a medical image to, uh, to just image the hard valve shape and then print it, uh, a composite and test it where, yeah. If you are not composite, you're terrible. After you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, hundred cycles, several hundred cycles, you just uh, have a crack growth. The shape is so weird; it's very difficult to maintain perfect structure. But uh, with composite structure, it just lasts forever. You cannot fracture it. Yeah, yeah I think this very a uh, hot topic and very interesting, very important. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So yeah. So we're constant and the few questions are, do you think ego is important for the researcher? The ego is important. Uh, what do you mean ego? You mean self-worth? Yeah. Uh, what, uh, it, 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 it depend on how you think ego. Uh, ego, if uh, in the positive spin, I would say uh, it's important, it's spin in the sense uh, uh, believe in yourself and believe uh, the problems that you care about uh, will yeah. be helpful to other people. I think that's, that's almost crucial, especially for somebody working on mechanics with uh, such a long tradition of a Newton, right? Who started new science uh, or started science period, uh, Galileo, right? Yeah. Who were directed descendant of Galileo and Newton. If you don't have some ego in whatever you do, yeah. you'll probably will stop doing it immediately. Yeah. But uh, if you have any sense of a history and you will know what you do or what Newton did, is a minute compared to what human needs. Because Newton did not do solve robots, right? He didn't, he couldn't. Even he wanted, he couldn't. So, uh, so there'll be always new things for you to do, just believe in yourself. So there is a one American, I don't know if you know this guy, he's a, he's a local guy uh, many hundred years, uh, 200 years ago, it's Emerson, has a uh, Ralph Everson, uh, Emerson, you go online, Emerson, who uh, used to write many essays. One of the essays, a very famous essay, titled um, Self-Reliance self-reliance, basically he said, you need to have some ego, believe in yourself. But on the other hand, if ego also has a bad aspect, right? Uh, so, uh, right, uh, it's just uh, believing uh, too much uh, of your own worth. That is, uh, is uh, I think it's uh, very damaging to people's health and uh, relationship. The sooner you can get rid of it, the better. <laughs> I really like the answer. I think very, very excellent answer. Yeah. And I'm curious to ask you what may be the most important quality you have gained while being in academia? What may be the most important quality you have to maintain 
as a researcher in academia. Yeah. So uh, I guess it depends on the stages uh, of a career. Mm. So for a student who, graduate student, who thinks plan a career in academic, uh, so uh, especially in the United States, or uh, most familiar because the different region, Europe is somewhat different, China is somewhat different. Uh, in United States, uh, the emphasis has always been on innovation. Yeah, you ultimately get respect as a researcher. You can become mm -hmm. an administrator, which is also worthwhile endpoint for uh, people. But if you your endpoint is you want to just uh, be a researcher, then yeah. the innovation almost is a single measurement. Yeah. Yeah, everything else is about uh, you get money to be innovative and mm. uh, yeah, you, you make friends to be innovative. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm gonna ask you a quick question here because I think in the podcast we speak about uh, publish or perish culture. I don't know if in the 80s you had this culture. Of course, they are brilliant researchers, but sometimes in a sense it's a pressure to publish papers. And sometimes if you want to explore and take your time and and like fatigue example, just to try to make sure this material is fatigue resistant, takes time and experiment. How do you see the culture nowadays for publish of culture? Since some people say it sometimes affects uh, our curiosity and this, and people say we can do balance between both of them. Do you, how do you see this new culture? It was existing ages before in seventies, or just something completely new nowadays? Publish publish culture. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's an interesting question. So uh, there is a really an excellent book published a few years back. Uh, the title is uh, "Reinventing Discovery," something like that, by uh, by this guy who also wrote a book, the definitive book on quantum computing. Michael, what was his name? Do you know who I'm talking about? He's a physicist and became a computer scientist. Uh, anyway, uh, the title of that book is a Reinventing Discovery. It was an extraordinary book. Hmm. Uh, the guy was just an exceptional writer. Anyway, he gave a nice perspective. The publishing actually itself has very short history. Hmm very short history. It's essentially starting uh, from uh, uh, the time of Galileo. So mm -hmm. even Galileo, by his time, um, you can already publish papers, maybe not journals, you can publish books. Then when Galileo made his most important discovery, the discovery, I think it's about uh, the satellites of uh, uh, Saturn, one of the, such discovery, he did not publish it. What he did is um, he wrote a secret message, you know, scrambling wor words in those days and sent that message, unreadable message mm -hmm. to handful of leading contemporaries. I made a discovery, this discovery is uh, in this code. Mm -hmm. That apparently accepted 
practice so that he can secure his priority. Yet, nobody can read his discovery to build upon his discovery. Mm. That was a process. At a Galileo okay. time. Yeah, Hook, for example, our Hook's Law was yeah. also initially published that way, uh, published as a secret code. The force is proportional to displacement. Was published mm. by Hook in this secret code. It, so I would say for people uh, who want to have spent a lot of time to own a problem, they have ancestor. They have distinguished ancestor in the name of a hook and a Galileo. But I would also say time has changed. Research mm -hmm. ultimately is a collaboration. I actually encourage, uh, I feel people should really publish as much as they can and mm -hmm. as fast as they can so that uh, other people can build on your result. So, so I believe uh, the, uh, the, the shifting culture of a value, shorter papers, your know, nature, science, PRL, this kind of uh, yeah, PNAS, I believe it's created for a reason. I believe it's good. Mm -hmm. Just uh, so that you have a rapid communication between researchers. And it's also because we can, right? Right now, submitting paper, just one click away, you submit mm -hmm. that paper, right? So whether the paper is only one page long, two page long, three page long, you don't, you don't have a postage issue, right? And a, a review is another click away. So you rapidly engage people in any new discovery. Yeah. I think this will be the trend. The, the train has already passed us. To yeah. criticize um, or publish and uh, perish, they simply did not know the history of publication. They just didn't know. They should read mm. what's happened, what has happened. They should yeah. not bring us back to the time of Galileo and the hook. That's wrong to keep research private to yourself, that's being selfish. And th that selfish behavior rightly should be punished. You're right. Should be punished by yeah. other people published ahead of you. Should be punished yeah. because you are being selfish. Just like Galileo, just like Galileo. Yeah. That's really wise words. Uh, I, I deeply thank you for that. Yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice I was given to you and was the life changing? Maybe personally, professionally, it was life-changing for you. Ooh, yeah. I've received so many good advice. Uh, yeah, I, I, best, I, I don't know best. So uh, all through my career, I mentioned a few people, right? Uh, uh, Professor G, my first mentor, then Hutchinson. When I went to UCSB, Santa Barbara, or as a young uh, assistant professor, I had uh, multiple uh, mentors. Uh, uh, Santa Barbara in those years was such a, still is a collaborative uh, institution. Uh, so Tony Evans, uh, David Clark, and Bob McMeekin, 
and uh, uh, Fred Land, uh, Frank Zog, I know, it's just a name just goes on, and Fred Lecky, they all give me great advice. One thing is uh, interesting, uh, speaking about academic culture, things do change. So uh, when I was an assistant professor, I was encouraged to collaborate with everybody. So mm. I almost wrote paper with every colleague and nobody questioned my intellectual independent, independence. Clearly I was not independent because I wrote papers with almost all my papers were written in collaboration with someone. So, but nobody questioned me. They actually gave me tenure within three years. Oh, she got your tenure, move on. I was promoted to professor in six years. Oh, six years, you, you, you're a professor now, <laughs> uh, move on. So nobody questioned my, uh, uh, yeah. But through these collaborations, I really learned the best of the people. So how they think, uh, yeah, how they relate, you know, things you can do in the lab and uh, an equation you write on paper to something real. Real, not just say this phenomena appear in nature, but also engineers can use this phenomena to, to do something better for other people. So uh, that, that seemed to be the, rela the relation between reality and something you create in your mind and your lab seemed to be the ultimate thing. Yeah. That I learned from multiple researchers. Some of them are theoreticians, some of them are uh, experimentalists, some of them are more profound, always lost in thought. Some of them are more practical, always connected with immediate application. And they all have this translation between, uh, between what's in people's mind and something real, that, that translation. Just beautiful. Wow, that's very beautiful. Uh, do you have any final words maybe you would like to say as a community? Any final words you would like to say? Any final words you want to say? <laughs> so I don't know, final word. So I, I just, uh, I guess uh, just uh, uh, this uh, Ralph Emerson's uh, message was in uh, 18 sometime. He was a local and lived nearby uh, in, in, in Massachusetts, self-reliance. So just, just, just a wonderful world has so many opportunities. You are never too late. So Newton did not solve all the problems or whoever big shots in your field. The problems of what has the problems that engage you, make sure it engage other people. It will be if you do a good job. Yeah, so thanks so much, Professor So I think this is really, yeah, thoughtful and beautiful. And I think you are a wonderful mentor and professor. And thanks for all the research you're doing. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast. I really enjoyed it so much. So thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good Thank luck you. for you. Thank you. Thank you.